You're listening to the 2019 Central Texas Men's Conference. More information is available at centraltexasmc.com. Here's Ben Stewart. Awesome to be back in Texas. It's just so fantastic to see the sky and grass and uh, to eat barbecue last night. It's amazing how in D.C. some guys said, hey, I think we have barbecue places that rival Texas. It really didn't say that. And uh, uh, it's insane. It makes no sense. But uh, it was awesome to get some barbecue last night, and it's just great to be here with you guys. Uh, my wife is at a women's retreat actually this very weekend, and I guarantee they are not doing anything like what I just saw. Uh, so, uh, somebody said to me, I don't know how you're going to follow that. I'm like, I pray and be your God and jump in, but that's awesome. If you got a Bible, uh, we are in 1 John chapter 3, and you know, the theme of this weekend is distraction, but I'll tell you what we're going to do tonight is um, really kind of try to put that conversation in a bigger context, uh, biblically, and so we're going to lay some some groundwork tonight uh, that will free us up to get pretty practical uh, as tomorrow or the next day goes along. So we've got a Bible in 1 John chapter 3, if you don't have one, we'll read it out loud. Uh, to you, but if you can bring a copy of scriptures where you want, I'll help you through the weekend. But first John 3, I'll read and pray, and we'll jump in. And it says this, starting in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He's pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sin is the devil. For the devil has been sent from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sin. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for every man in this room. Whether they're here and just love you as much as they can and we're excited about a chance to worship you and serve you. Or they're here and not sure what to think about any of this. Maybe a buddy brought them and it was it took a significant amount of courage to even land in this room. And I'm grateful that they exhibited that and showed up. Wherever we are in our journey with you, God. I just want to ask you to rescue us from just doing a retreat. Nobody needs that. Rescue us from hearing some advice from a parent. 
a guy on stage. We need more than that. We need a renewal spiritually. We need to know our maker and in knowing you, know ourselves. And God, I really believe that you want to use this weekend to change some things forever for us. The way we see you, the way we think about you, the way we see ourselves, the way we treat our wives, the women in the world, the kids. I think you want to do some radical change in this space that we'd be different when we leave. I can't produce that and a retreat can't, but you can. And so I just want to invite you men, if you're willing and comfortable. Some of you this is very normal. Some of you maybe have never done this, but I want to ask all of us, if you're willing, you take a minute and you talk to God and ask him, say, Lord, please teach me something tonight. <laughs> And then if you want, please pray for me. The Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, I love you. Let me trust you. Use this time. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, through a unique set of circumstances, I've been able to spend quality time with Navy SEALs. Which is fine, because I think when they're at home training in the States, they do what I can imagine a lot of guys in here would love to do on a daily basis. Uh, so if you're a student, while you're learning the finer points of algebra in class, they're learning the finer points of how to fire a grenade launcher, right? While you're in the office returning phone calls, they're out in the jungle learning how to stalk a guy. I remember I was with a buddy after he got back from drive fast school, and he was showing me how to take a vehicle up to 90 miles an hour and then make a 90 degree turn by using the handbrake. And I was like, that's awesome. I'll use that next time I'm late for church or whatever. <laughs> but I remember there was one time I was with a guy and he was showing me a video at his house, a group of us from this training school he had just gotten back from called Halo School. Uh, Halo is an acronym, it stands for high altitude. Low opening. It's a parachute school. And it's not just for seals, it's for all different branches of the military, but it's a fairly intense process. For them, it was maybe half a day in the classroom, and then they're throwing the other airplanes. And uh, when the begin video began, uh, they had the guys in these baby blue outfits. And, uh, you know, even if you've never parachuted in your life, you know just instinctively when you leap out of the plane, you should kind of like face the ground. I remember when the first guy jumped out of the plane, as soon as he hit the air, he just started running. <laughs> and you watch the video and you're like, there's no traction up there, man. Lean, right? Uh, but even when the guys figured out how to lean, they all looked nervous. They would open their mouths and flick your cheeks flat like crazy. And uh, they all looked kind of funny. And yet with each successive jump, they would learn some new skill. They learned how to tackle like 100 miles an hour. They learned how to move their body in the exact terms with little subtle hand movements. And with each jump, they looked less and less funny and looked more and more impressive. And I remember as the video came to a close, kind of the last jump they were doing, I just noticed in the room as we were watching the video, nobody was laughing anymore. Because as we watched them load into the plane, they weren't wearing baby blue outfits anymore. They were in dark colors, jungle greens, blacks. How about 60 pounds of gear strapped to them, including weapons? Didn't look nervous at all. And when the signal was given on the plane, they left out without hesitation. And as I watched them descend through the sky in that video, it suddenly struck me why none of us were laughing anymore. Because it dawned on us what this video was. These aren't some buddies taking a parachute class for fun. These are warriors. 
And they're doing this because they're training for a mission. High altitude, so the enemy doesn't hear the plane. Low opening, so you spend minimal amount of time as an open target. And the reason they're doing this is to rescue those who are in jeopardy and wreak havoc upon those who oppress them. And I remember as I watched that video, it struck me so clearly. Now that is Christmas. I don't know what Christmas means to you. I don't know how you answer that question when someone asks you, what does Christmas mean to you? I don't know if you want family or presents or Jesus born slower. I don't know what you say, but can I give you a biblical answer the next time someone asks you what Christmas means to you, you can say to them, you know, when I think of Christmas, I think destruction. <laughs> yeah, the reason for the season is destruction. That's what I think. And you can biblical and say that. And you say, well, where are you getting that? Well, I got it from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy something. The reason we are here is because God wants something in us destroyed. And yet, I know some of you hear that and you go, what are you talking about, man? I thought Jesus came to, to save and, and to bring peace and heal. And you go, yeah, but think about it. For him to bring peace necessarily assumes that there's a state where there is no peace. For him to save means something was holding you captive. For him to heal means there's a sickness in us that has to be cut out. And the reality is liberation requires destruction. And if we're really going to be men who know why we're here on the planet and know what it is that God is up to in the world, we need to appreciate that there are some things that God wants destroyed. So now the questions for tonight are, what is one of his coming? How did he do it? And then how do we participate in that destructive work? That's what we're going what did he come to destroy? Well, the text says he came to destroy the works of the devil. And I know some people hear that, you're like, devil? Really? Like red outfit, tail, horns? Is that what we're going Seriously? Well, it's fascinating. You don't have to go very far to look at like the thinly veiled spiritual allegories that we see in movies, you know, like the Harry Potters and Lord of the Rings. And whenever they're kind of these spiritual movies, they all depict a world of conflict. C.S. Lewis, who uh, was the offspring God, was an atheist, but became a Christian, wrote this. He said, one thing that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was it talked so much about a dark power in the universe. A mighty evil spirit with power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity asserts the world is in war. And so some people hear that and go, I don't know if I believe that. But if you don't, then you have to come up with a philosophy to explain why something as amazing as humanity does the horrible things we do to each other. How do you explain hundreds of thousands dead in Somalia because warlords use hunger as a weapon? You say, well, it's education. Then. They like education in Africa. When Oprah's done down there, it'll all be fun. <laughs> well, then how do you explain Nazi Germany? Millions killed by one of the most educated nations of its day. And you say, well, we've evolved since then. Well, how do you explain the millions killed by their own government in the 20th century? Or how do you explain us? Even us, even if you don't believe in a God, we'll set up our own morality and can't keep it. There's something wrong with us. And it transcends politics, transcends education. 
There was an article that came out just a couple of years ago, it's actually not that long ago, and it was called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. Shook up the atheist community because of the prominent atheist, Matthew Paris, and he wrote it for the Times United Kingdom. And he talked about when he was visiting his native Malawi, where he grew up. And he says about his visit there, he had gone to see an organization that was providing clean water in Malawi. He wrote, it inspired me and renewed my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief in me too, one I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, as a confirmed atheist, I become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, if you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, teach people to read and write. Only the severest kind of secularist can see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be better without it. I'd allow that if faith was needed to motivate the missionary, fine, but what counted was the help, not the faith. But anyway, that doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary, it's transferred to the flock. And the effect matters so immensely, I cannot help observing it. And then he writes at the end of the article, for those who want Africa to walk taller in the 21st century global competition, must not kid themselves that providing material means or the know-how accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. And I'm afraid it will be supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the coming at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike and the witch doctor, the mobile phone and the machine. He looks at the world today and he says, we want to make little tweaks to our behavior. And that would be a good temptation for me to come here and say, let me kind of give you some ways to turn over a new leaf. We're still in January. If your New Year's resolution folded, let me give you some new ones. How to minimize distractions, to maximize your effectiveness. And we need to get into that. But the reality is what we need deeper than just some attitude adjustments or some adjustments to our schedule is we need belief systems supplanted. We need a spiritual transformation. Even an atheist can see it. And he says, if we don't do that, I am worried we're going to be mixed up in a world that's just kind of us toying with sexuality and violence. And there's a warning in that. And it's fascinating. Not that long ago, I read two books by people who don't believe in God, but what got them to believe in God was not the belief that there's so much beauty in the world, there must be a beautiful artist above it. Both of them believed in the existence of God, not because they saw a beautiful spirituality, it started with a belief in the darkness. One of them was a dad who was an atheist and was a prominent journalist. They watched his son descend into death. And somebody told me he was praying for him. He said, I don't believe in God. And the guy said, you will before this is all over. And at one point he wrote, as he was processing the descent of his son, he said, I don't believe in God, but only the devil could create a drug like this. 
And in a moment of desperation, he finds himself screaming about the brokenness of the world, and then suddenly those screams become prayers. Please, God, heal my son. And it was a belief in God was born out of peering into the darkness. Brian Welch, who was the lead guitarist of Korn, came to faith in Jesus. Not because of the beauty of Jesus, but because he was toying with the darkness, and then he realized, no, he's toying with me. There's something wrong with the world, and it's scary. And the Bible will say it transcends race and education, it transcends time, and it's orchestrated. The Bible calls him the devil, which means accuser, or Satan, which means adversary. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age. John said, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of this evil one. And Ephesians 2 calls him the spirit, even now at work, in the sons of disobedience. It sounds like a bad band to them. <laughs> but it's talking about us. It's a consciousness. And he's working. You know, what's his work? Well, it says in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Sin means there was a mark we were supposed to hit, and we did not hit it. As men, there's something we're meant to be, and we are not it. And then it says later, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And what that means is not that God's a big one. Did he just cuss? Okay, he broke a rule. You're out of hell. Okay. And that's what it is. What it means is God created this world to work in a certain way, and we know that. He created physical laws. The book of Proverbs says that God established the earth with wisdom, and he says of wisdom, all her ways are peace. That the way God created the world to work, everything works together, and everything flourishes. That's how the world was meant to work. So the sky rains down water, the feeds the crops that feed us. There's a rhythm to the world physically. There's a rhythm to the world emotionally. Men are meant to love and cherish wives. Wives respect and build up husbands. Parents see the gifts in their children and help foster those gifts so that kid can use them to benefit the community. God built the world that when everything operates as it should, it makes sense. That's the law he's talking about. Governing laws that help us all flourish. And it says the enemy came to upend all that. That he walked into the beautiful peace Shalom God made and began to tempt Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. And he convinced them of a lie. To really experience life, you have to walk away from the author of life. And when our first parents believed that, everything broke. It says our foolish hearts went dark. Relationships between men and women broke. The ground is cursed because of you. Everything in the world broke. All of it. And so now when you look at the news, every psycho that goes into a school with a gun, and every weird, insecure thing we say to get attention from people flows out of this brokenness. There's a sickness in the world, and it's pervasive. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it this way, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It's in all of us. And what's the solution to that? What was the solution in our It's interesting. Um, for me, like I said, I grew up in Texas, and uh, my grandma lived in Beeville, Texas. I don't know if anyone here's been to Beeville. Not many people have. Okay, yeah, in the world. My grandma lives in Beeville, Texas, and she had a pool in her backyard that years before had been emptied of uh, water. Emptied of pool water. 
Over the years, it is filled up with rainwater and grass and sticks and trees. And there are all kinds of animals there. There's frogs in there and snakes. And when you're like a little kid with a vivid imagination, it's frogs and snakes and all things evil. Right? <laughs> so question, what do you do when your grandma has a pool of evil in the backyard? <laughs> As a little boy, you play on the edge of it, right? You stay on the edge like, I can't even stay on the edge. All right, and that's what my brother and I would do. And we would go and do that. I remember one time I was flirting around at the edge of the pool of evil, and I slipped, and I fell. And there were real snakes in there. It's really not a great place. So my number one priority is, I gotta get out of here. So I ran as hard as my little four-year-old legs would carry me, and I saw the edge of that pool, and I made a jump for it. And I didn't come close. Like, I don't know who dug out that pool, but he was motivated, right? <laughs> and I remember looking up at my brother, who's only a year older than me, and I was like, oh. and he looked at me like, oh, is he gonna come in? I was like, ah! Oh. I realized, I can't get out! So I did. Really, the only resource you have available at four years old, you realize you're stuck in a pool of evil and you're naked. I started to cry. And I remember as I started to cry, I looked through the fence slats, and there was a guy in there that was probably college teenage in the neighbor's yard, and I saw him right as he heard me cry. And he dropped his little garden tool in him, and he just started to run. And I remember when he got to that fence, he just left it all in one moves. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool, said this. And he goes into that pool with me. And he pulled me out. It's one of my earliest memories. It's him leaning down and looking at me and saying, Are you okay, son? And I was speechless. As I looked into the face of the person who would die and mess with me. See, the thing is here is Christianity is not going to give you a bunch of crystal rules. And I don't know if you know this, but we still, like Brother Shed earlier, begin to sort of believe that anyway. If I'm just accomplished A, B, and C, then I'll do it. But the reality is Christianity begins when we realize I'm stuck. And I've put myself in a pool of my own making and I can't get out. The good news is, with the very stain of their sin still on them, God walked into the garden and he looked at our first parents and he said, I'm going to put enmity, that is hatred, between this woman and that serpent, between him, his seed, and hers. And then he said, he, he calls the seed of a woman with a singular male pronoun. There is going to be a boy who's going to be the seed of a woman, which is a weird thing to call a boy because women don't have seed, right? You don't have time to go into that. You can ask John, tell the guys later. There's going to be a boy, the seed of woman who's going to come and crush the head of the one who deceived us, the one who put this brokenness in the world. That at the very beginning, God's solution to your problem in mind is a savior. What you need is not a list of laws, you need a liberator. What you need in your life is not some turnover new leaf, you need to embrace a hero. And so God and Genesis begins to run. Jesus came to crush the head of the one who's deceived us and made us less than we're meant to be as men. How did he do it? The text says he did it by his appearing. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. His appearing on earth was a landed invasion. Do you remember when he commenced his earthly ministry? We 
comes to the book of Luke, it's like musical. Mary's singing, Elizabeth's singing, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant too. And the angels start singing, everybody's singing in Luke. <laughs> Matthew, what happens? Herod is sparked with jealousy because he hears about a rival king. And so Jesus is not introduced with the singing of angels in Matthew. It's with the screams of mothers as Herod slaughters their babies. Someone wants him dead, and he has to flee. And do you remember Jesus goes into hiding, emerges at age 30, steps out into the Jordan, gets baptized, the heavens open. This is my son. God identifies him. The spirit lands on him. What's the next thing that happens? Out into the wilderness, the enemy begins to tempt him. Begins to assault him with temptations. And you remember Jesus is fighting off the Deuteronomy quotes? <laughs> and finally the devil says, I will give you everything, everything. Just stop doing what you're here to do. And you remember what Jesus said? Sorry, man, I can't help you. It's like a rough translation. It's like the message version. That's what he says to him. <laughs> Then he walks into his hometown, steps out in front of the synagogue, grabs the scroll, turns to the place in Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach to the good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives. I have come to set captives free. Watch me. And he begins to do damage against the kingdom of darkness. And he steps into physical brokenness and brings healing. He goes to a woman whose life has been devastated because of her sexual shame. And the broken ways she's interacting with men. And he brings her dignity back and healing to her broken heart. He comes to men who have isolated themselves from every relationship because of their pursuit of money. And he brought that guy community and a chance again to live the life he's meant to live. Jesus begins to beat the darkness back and show up. Demons screaming when he shows up. You ever wonder why that happens? Jesus rolls in and demons are screaming when he shows up. One of my favorite explanations of why Jesus came on the planet. Try this next time when someone asks you, man, you seem really into Jesus. What's Jesus about? You can try this. You can get it from the gospel. But just say, um, imagine like a really strong guy and he's got a bunch of gear. Now imagine a stronger guy beating him up and stealing his things. That's Jesus. <laughs> if you don't believe me, Luke chapter 11. Jesus was asked what he's doing here. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his house, his possessions are undetermined. But when someone stronger than him attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Why were demons screaming when he showed up? Because the strong one was here. That's why. And let me tell you something. Some of you, you didn't sing at all earlier. Because you, I want more of you, God. Set a blaze in my soul. That, that is not in any way indicative of what's going on in your heart. And I'll tell you why. It's because for many of you, you feel so locked up in a cycle of brokenness and shame and addiction. And I'm never going to get free from this thing that haunts me in the dark. Certainly not going to share with these people. I don't say it out loud, but I know my destiny is I'm not going to reach higher than my dad did, and it wasn't that high. Some of you feel so victimized by your addictions and by your family story. And I just want to tell you, before we start talking about technique tomorrow, let me give you a new testimony. The stronger one is here. All that might be true of you. 
all the horrible things are true. But something beautiful is true. That in the midst of our chaos, God said, Hero, that's my hope. That's the Bible's hope. That you can have a future, not because you figured something out, but because you see Him. One of my favorites is, you remember, he sees the guy who was so wrapped up in sin, you remember, he was screaming, running around among the graves, and it says, no chain can hold him anymore. It means that used to be able to be controlled, but he stepped into some darkness that was controlling him, howling and naked among the graves, completely shameless and broken, and Jesus claims and brings peace to him, right? Seated, clothed in his bright mind. Jesus changes his story with his power. But what I love it is when Jesus talks to the legion, do you remember what the demons say? Son of God, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? It's like they know a whooping's coming, they just thought he was early. <laughs> they were like, oh man, that's what you wanted to do. <laughs> Jesus takes his boys and tells them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, we're not going to die there. Peter sidebars and starts giving them a pep talk. They know the size of God around here, and Jesus checks him by pointing past Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan is trying to keep me from my mission in the kingdom. So we said we looked that he set his face like stone towards Jerusalem. And on the night he was betrayed, John 12 says, Jesus said to his disciples, now is the judgment of this world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. He says it later in verse 16, the ruler of this world will be judged. How do we do it? By perpetrating violence? No. Hebrews 2 says it this way. Therefore, since the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He said he saw what we were subject to, and he took it upon himself. Not perpetrating violence, but by taking it onto himself. Not by shaming you, but by taking your shame upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He absorbed it and he killed it and he buried it in the dirt. Look at the ground and the shame. And that stone's rolled away. And that perfect one could not be overcome. Right? He rose. Victorious to look even at Peter and to say, Your shame, I buried it so that you could have a new life with me. Jesus came and destroyed the works of the devil. Colossians 2 will say it this way When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, canceling out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. It's talking about that constant condemnation you feel that's justified. You do this, you think that, you are this, and it's true. It's that he took all that and nailed it to the cross, not some piece of paper with your list of sins, the very hands and feet of the maker of the stars, nailed to a cross with your sin and mine. He took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, and when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through him. The enemy's greatest 
weapon against you is your unforgiven sin. And so Jesus forgave it and took that sword right out of the enemy's hand and threw it away. There is now for, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He made a public spectacle of that enemy and triumphed over him. What I love about that is that word triumph was actually an event in these days. So the earliest audience in the New Testament, when that word triumph comes up a few times, would understand what it meant. A triumph was, was an event, kind of like a parade. And the way triumphs worked were, like if we were part of a village and enemy was, were attacking us, it's not like a football game. You know, like if your enemy wins, they kill all the men, rape the women, and kill the children, and burn the village. Okay, so, you know, you don't want to be in the L call, right? It's important to win that fight. So if you're in a village and you say, hey, people are attacking us, and your king is marshaling you right out against them, the village is waiting breathless to see how's our king going to do. And your king rides out to face that enemy. And let's say an emissary comes running back from the battlefront and comes to the town and says, our king is victorious. He beat the one who came after us. The town doesn't just go, oh, tell them congrats. So just make the playoffs. I'm working this That's not how it works. They are thrilled. They're like, you mean we're not going to die? Yes! It's pretty awesome. And so what do they do? He tells them, and the king is coming home. They don't go, well, tell them congrats. What they do is they start getting the town ready. If the roads are a little beaten up, if they got divots in them, they fill up the divots. Right? Where it's low, they bring it high. Where it's too high, they bring it low. They make straight a pathway for their king. Scrub down all the buildings, scrub down the kids, get them dressed up. Meanwhile, the king is not going to ride in with a gore of battle on him. The king gets dressed up in his best outfit so that when he rides into town, he'll ride on his best horse, a white horse, or maybe in a chariot pulled by a white horse. The whole village would come out to the edge of the town to meet him, and they would, he would come through this big parade of celebrating people, and as he came in to the celebration of the cries of his people, typically the way the triumphs work is the king would ride in in all his pomp and his glory, and he would and then tied to the chariot of the king was the enemy king who tried to kill us. And he was usually naked. Because naked people look funny in the middle of the day. <laughs> and that was the point. That the one who had shamed and terrified you is now shamed and powerless in the presence of the victorious king. And there was one other group in the triumph. There was the people who had been set free. And they would put them in fine linen. Are you coming? And they'd give those centuries of incense. And they would sing. And the whole point of that was so that the whole town, and you most of all, would be covered in the scent of your victorious king. <coughs> Second Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. The story of the Bible is not a group of people who figured something out. It's a group of people who were rescued by a victorious king. And we are clean because he made us clean. We are free because he made us clean. And we are the aroma of his victory everywhere we go, telling the story of the victory. How does he destroy the works of the devil? He did it by his appearing on the cross, and he did it by his appearing in us. 
potential switch imagery. And I'm talking about a father and a seed, and his seed abides in us. And what happens is God plants his very spirit in you. The devil's defeated on that moment on that cross and on that moment when Jesus comes to you and says, No longer. You are no longer a child of the dark. I am transferring you to the kingdom of the blessing. You are no longer an orphan. You are now a child. You are no longer a broken one. I'm making you whole. You are no longer a lost one. I'm coming to get you that you will be found. I'm giving you a new name. I'm making you what you were meant to do. The devil's power is broken. Not when you figure something out, but when you are embraced by him. And he says, you are mine now. My very seed abides in you. And when his seed abides in me, it changes me. And it not only takes away the condemning power of sin, it takes away the controlling power of sin. Now I have the freedom to fight back and to become more than I ever was before. That's what he says, that no one born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. A new spirit is put in me that can fight. And the greatest fighters are the ones who know they've been fought for. The greatest fighters are the ones who know they've been fought for. You saw the Spartans. So much to not want to emulate about the ancient Spartan culture. Some really unhealthy decisions back then. <laughs> but they were wonderful fighters, and one of the main reasons why is because their king wouldn't stand in back to direct traffic as his men gave their lives for him. Their king would lead them into battle. And they saw, before we had done a thing for that king, we had lifted our souls, haven't done a thing. He is waiting into the chaos to fight for us. And that would motivate them. He's fighting for me, and that empowers me to fight. The greatest fighters know what it is to be fought for. It's the same with children. That's why it's so important for us as a culture to see children raised by strong men, by moms, because we see at every measurable level, kids who know they have parents fighting for them perform better in schools and in life. It doesn't mean you're doomed if you didn't have that, but absolutely it helps you get a sense of confidence that they're worth fighting for. Some of you need to understand that for the first time that you're worth fighting for. You didn't get that from your dad. You didn't get it from your mom, but you got it here. And he fought for you. He wants you, and that empowers you to fight. I can be more than I am now. I can overcome things I thought were impossible. Why? Because he overcame death and hell for me, and his very seed abides in me, and I'm going to look like my dad. He changed me. He destroys the work of the devil. When he appeared on that cross, when he appeared in my life, it changed me. Now I have the power to fight back. And that's what the next day and a half is to talk about, is how we do that well. But before we close tonight, I want to address one thing, and that is, I don't know if you were listening in the text, but it says that no one who's born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. I know some of us hear that go, is that preaching sinless perfection? No one who really is born of God continues to practice sin? Uh, because I might have sinned on the way here. The only way I can get out of the house, I can yell at some people. <laughs> well, no, it's not preaching sinless perfection. How do you know that? Well, the Greek verb is in the present tense, which means continuous active, that is, is ongoing, right? That no one who continually, unrepentantly indulges in what Jesus came to destroy really knows it. Because the people of Jesus don't revel in that which he came to destroy. We don't enjoy that which costs the life of our dear king. 
So if you're wading into it unrepentantly, yeah, I think that should steal your confidence if you're his. But does this mean you should be perfect? No, I think the verb tense kicks that off for you. But even if you don't know Greek verb tenses, you just got to read the whole book. Because earlier in 1 John, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. He says, if you say you've not sinned, you're deceiving yourself. If you say you haven't sinned, you're lying. And if you say, I haven't sinned, you're lying, which is a sin. So you're sinning, sinner. <laughs> so none of us are perfect. But the people who know him, we don't see perfection, but we now see progress. The ones who know they've been fought for now have the power of fight, and we should see it. Two illustrations, and I'm done. First one is this. I remember the first house I ever bought. I bought it, and it had been managed by a relocation company or something, which by managed, they mean abandoned. So <laughs> there was no grass anywhere. Not a single stick of a lot of grass, but there were weeds. Thousands of weeds. And when I say weeds, I don't mean like little guys. I mean like they were robust, taller than me, angry weeds, right? All over the yard. Question. How do the neighbors know that a new resident moved here? Because I took a weed I got out there and I felt like a little man in a big salad. Because you know, I kind of throw the water and I hit it on my like, I'm making coleslaw. I'm like, ah! Just carving these things down. And then we're yanking it up by the roots and putting different stuff on the ground, trying to plant grass. And we're going to war on that place. And a few months later, did it look like a pristine lawn? No. There's a little bit of grass here and there. That looks like grass. There was still a lot of weeds. But there was less weeds, and there was more grass. But it still looked kind of rough. So much so that if you were new to the area, and you hadn't seen that progress over time, but you just drove by my house in a moment, you might have looked at that yard and said, looks like nobody lives there. But you'd be wrong. Because <laughs> you haven't seen the progress over time. Do you see that? So you be careful those of you who want to judge who's a Christian and who's not. In just a snapshot moment, you don't know. On the night Jesus was betrayed, two men went running off into the dark. Judas who betrayed him, and Peter who betrayed him. And if you and I were standing there that night, I said, quick, which one's a real Christian? You'd probably go, uh, neither? And you'd be wrong. Judas is just the devil that entered him. But what happened to Peter? Peter folded, denied even knowing it, and ran. Peer pressure was too much. But then he wept. There's a bitterness to him. And then it's not that he got his crap together. What happened? Jesus came after him. Because he will never leave you and never forsake you. And said, man, I have better plans for you than what you're doing right now. So you be careful, you who want to judge people too quickly, because you condemn Peter along with Jesus and you wrong. But what you should see in your own life, if you know him, we don't revel in what he came to destroy. So we will see progress. Less weeds, more grass, but it's a progress that comes with struggle. But let that be an encouragement to him. And here's why. Last illustration. 
and kind of picturing, uh, I don't know if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, that opening scene, that horrible moment of crossing the beach, beating, that, that horrible battle scene. In a war like that, there's two kinds of people on a battleground like that. One looks agitated, nervous, one looks peaceful and serene. One looks tense, the other looks calm. What's the difference? The difference is the calm one is dead. Because dead people don't jump when a bomb goes off. Dead people don't buck, duck when a bullet whizzes by. It's the alive that are tense because they're most aware of the battle. You see it? And I say that because some of you are wrestling so deeply with some embarrassing sins for some of you, with some deep shame for some of you. And some of you have wrestled with those besetting sins unsuccessfully for so long that you go, if I'm still wrestling with this, if I'm having thoughts like this, maybe I'm not really a Christian. But let me tell you something, your awareness of the struggle is an evidence that you're alive. Because it's the alive who struggle, not the dead. The dead aren't aware of the battle, but when Jesus gives you life, you realize this is a spiritual battleground. My king won the decisive victory, and now he is calling me up to fight alongside him. And your struggle is an evidence that you're actually alive. Now all we have to figure out tomorrow is how to struggle well. Because there's some substantial victory ahead of us in these days if we can understand how to fight alongside our king. But before we start figuring out technique, we need transformation. Before you start to try to figure out how to fight well, you need to embrace and enjoy the fact that he fought for you. That he likes you. That he wants you. That he loves you. That he descended into chaos for you. And God wants you to Father, I want to thank you that the first John that tells us about this battle is also the book that mentions love 46 times. That you fought for us because you love us. And a lot of us are going to some broken places to find comfort. And Patrick Holmes said, addiction is an intimacy disorder. A lot of us are going to broken things because we have some broken things inside of us and we don't know how to enter into healthy, loving relationships. And I thank you that you're not standing in heaven, arms folded, waiting for us to figure it out. You came descending into the dark. Beat back death and hell to rescue us and to give us a new name and to clothe us and to see us and to put us in the right mind to cover us with the aroma of your victory, not ours so that we can go to bed tonight without having figured out a single thing to do we can go to bed knowing that heaven smiles on us because you have done it all you paid it all and God, I pray for anybody here tonight who just thought they were going to get, come here to get some good advice. I just noticed some men here that they don't need to wait till tomorrow. They can say, no, if Jesus is in the business of saving people, save me. Save me. If he's adopted people, adopt me. If you came plunging into the dark to transfer people into the kingdom of the blood of the Son, 
transforming. You tell them that. Tell them that right now, I want you. And then tell them us before you forget it. And then, God, for those of us who know you, I pray, Lord, that we do need to figure some things out. But I just pray you would help break the lie that our brother mentioned earlier, that we got to figure it out in order for you to like us. I pray, Lord, we can thank you. And I would encourage you, brothers, to do it even more. Thank him. That he loves you right now. Before you figure the thing out, he came running for you while you were a sinner. Christ died for you. Thank you, God, that you love us. Enough to come racing into the dark to get us. And we can go to bed tonight knowing that we're cared for by you. Because it's when we know that, that we get the power internally to stand up and fight, believing that if you set us free from the consequences of sin, you can set us free from the control of it too. And I believe God's hope is rising in men's hearts, even tonight, that there can be substantial healing and victory in Jesus' name over some things in our life. And I pray that you would seal that tonight. We believe we can stand on our two feet and rise with heads high and become more than we are now, not because we're so great, but because you are and you made us yours. Thank you for fighting for us. And Lord, I pray we will see that and embrace it because those who know they've been fought for know how to fight. And I pray we be men who make war against the dark for the sake of our children, our sons and our daughters, our wives and our friends and our co-workers in this broken world. May we join you in the great campaign of sabotage for your glory and for their good. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Thank you guys. Thank you.